KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We wanted to take a look at the recent trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, talk about the verdict and whether we could see more charges in connection with Jeffrey Epstein's sexual abuse of underage girls. For this conversation, we spoke with Lauren Uziel. She is an associate professor of law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. Give a listen. So to start, I think a lot of people know Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, There's a connection to Jeffrey Epstein. Can you just kind of set the table what this trial was all about? Yeah, sure. So um, Jeffrey, we can sort of start back a little bit with how this all this came to pass. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, as I think all of your listeners know, was, uh, you know, a wealthy, sort of highly connected person who had pleaded guilty in state court a number of years ago to a a charges of soliciting a minor for prostitution. And it turns out that that plea actually had come from a federal investigation out of Florida because his main home was in Palm Beach, Florida, um, where he committed a lot of his abuse of minors. Um, It had come out of this federal investigation, which the U.S. Attorney's Office had agreed to a a non-prosecution agreement with him. Um, and which he would plead guilty it right in state court to this this single count or maybe it was two counts and he had an 18 month prison sentence um, and this actually all came to light the, the non-prosecution agreement was sealed so people didn't know about that it all came to light um, because the U.S attorney at the time who had negotiated that and, and signed off on it was um, Alex Acosta who was Trump's labor secretary and when he was going through his um, his hearings, this this had sort of come to light, and it caused folks to to look at it, and in particular, caused a, a journalist from the Miami Herald to take a close look at it, and that led to a, a big expose where the victims were interviewed, and it turned out that the level of sexual abuse was um, far greater had gone on for a really long period of time, had ensnared dozens of girls and that, you know, people felt like this, you know, what he had had gotten out of uh, at the federal level was he had got a really sort of cheap deal. I mean, ultimately the, right, Acosta resigned as labor secretary. It was a big deal. And the DOJ conducted an internal review of, of his decision-making. And, um, and, then the, and then the Southern District of New York decided to take a look at it. It had jurisdiction because Epstein also had a townhome in Manhattan where he also committed sexual abuse. And so the Southern District of New York sort of took a look at this. And keep in mind, there's no, effectively no uh, statute of limitations or or really to say it's a, more accurately, just a really um, expanded statute of limitations for crimes involving sexual exploitation of minors in in the federal system. So, these cases can be charged essentially as long as the victims are alive. And so uh, the Southern District of New York ultimately charged Epstein and he was arrested and then he killed himself while in prison. Um, And so this case 
uh, was charged in connection with the Epstein case because Maxwell was Epstein's, they had had a, a sexual relationship, they had uh, had dated, and then um, after that relationship, quote unquote, ended, she maintained this very close relationship with him as sort of his right hand person. And, and turned out she was uh, his prime enabler for a lot of the abuse that he perpetrated on girls. Um, and so she was charged uh, in an indictment in the Southern District of New York. And the trial that just happened was, was the culmination of that indictment. She was facing, if I'm correct, six federal charges, was found guilty on five. Am I correct? Uh, yes. And she also faces another two charges for perjury, which were part of the same indictment, but they were severed, which is fairly standard in a, in a case like this, um, because, uh, you know, she might have testified in the trial. And so it, right, it would have uh, been difficult for the jury to differentiate, right, to be able to, to sort of take her testimony given, given the perjury counts and those were a little bit separate. So the judge severed those and those are going to be tried at some point, perhaps. How big is this? Because the Jeffrey Epstein case was, you know, you talked about how when it, it kind of came out, the the agreement that had been reached where uh, it led to the labor secretary resigning and everything. Uh, how big is this as far as kind of being the next domino to fall? I guess, I don't know what you mean by the next domino to fall. We don't know if there will be dominoes after. How big is it in terms of, you know, her relative culpability? I think it's quite big. I mean, she, based on the, the testimony that came out at trial, I mean, she was a critical uh, enabler of Epstein's crimes. I mean, she, she played this role um, as the evidence showed at trial of essentially allowing these victims to feel comfortable sort of you know she was she started the initial introductions um and she played this role of a of a of a woman who would sort of be present you know initially to sort of introduce these girls and bring them in and and have them gain her trust and then be present for the acts of sexual abuse in order to normalize them um for these girls and so it, you know one got the impression sort of as the the evidence came out during this trial of, you know, how much of a role she really did play. I mean, she was she was a critical enabler, um, you know, based on the testimony. So I think it is a big deal. And you, you talked about we don't know if there will be other trials coming. One of the things I think that people have been keeping an eye on this is because right or wrong on social media, there are a lot of big names that have been connected to Jeffrey mm -hmm. Epstein be it pictures, be it anecdotes. And I would imagine that's got a lot of people nervous. And this is the type of thing, it seems, the more strings you pull, the more different directions it could go. Well, it really all depends on what the government has found in its investigation. And we don't know. I mean, we you know, there haven't been charges yet announced against others. We don't know if there ever will be. We just don't. I mean, typically the government is silent um, until it brings an indictment, right? It's not, they don't talk about investigations as they're ongoing because that's right, inappropriate. It, it, it's um, unfair to the people who are sort of wrapped up in that investigation because it could be that there isn't sufficient evidence to charge. And so 
Um, it's sort of unfair to, to have a prosecutor sully someone's reputation. So that's all normal. Prosecutors don't talk about, um, about charges before they bring them. And so we just don't know. I mean, it, you know, it's pretty clear that she hasn't cooperated. Uh, I don't know if she attempted to cooperate and that fell through or if she didn't want to cooperate or if she, you know, doesn't have information about other people. Um, we just don't know. I mean, she cooperation is still open to her if the government is interested at this point. It's, it's not foreclosed once a defendant has been convicted that they can't subsequently enter into a cooperation agreement with the government. But, it, you know, it, it it's not, I would say it's certainly not the norm. And in a case like this, where she was such a pivotal player and so clearly culpable, uh, you know, the government's really got to think about balancing, you know, what is the information exactly she could bring to the table? What does she have to say? And is right. Is it right to sort of give her a benefit in her sentence to go after other people who may be far, far, far less culpable, you know, just because those people might be well known. That's a balance the government's going to have to think about, but all of this is speculative because we don't even know if she has information or if she's interested in, in, sharing it with the government. How much damage do you think just from a law prof- law standpoint, how much damage was done when you talk about the original agreement that was with Epstein and it now in retros, it's just so egregious. And it just, I think even people that don't understand the law are just shake their head. Like how in the world could that happen? And now you kind of see the ripple effects of the Maxwell trial. Like, this was relatively close to being filed away forever and no one really being the wiser. I mean, how, how much damage does that do in the public eye to, you know, this, to the department of justice and such? I mean, I think it was obviously not, not helpful for the department of justice, both in, in two respects, right? So one was the actual decision to enter into this non-prosecution agreement and the other was there were uh, you know complaints by the victims that they were not informed of this and they weren't given a chance to weigh in. Um, and you know the the Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility conducted a review and determined that none of this rose to the level of professional misconduct, but it was not good, <laughs> right? It was you know they I think they used the word for you know Acosta had essentially. Um, exercised poor judgment, um, and the the on the on the decision to enter into the non-prosecution agreement, and that the victims had right that again it wasn't uh, did the the way the U.S. Attorney's Office handled their relations with the victims and communications with the victims was not um, didn't rise to the level of misconduct, but it was not it wasn't well handled. This is not good. On the other hand. It's good, you know. It's good that the Justice Department has, uh, right, an arm that conducts these reviews, and that the reviews are public. They're published. Everyone can go read the report um, and can learn all about what was done and how it was handled. Agencies make mistakes. You know, law enforcement officials make mistakes, and it's important that we all learn from them. And particularly, obviously, the, that the Justice Department will learn from it, and you know, we'll have that people will have that in mind as they're dealing with, with cases like this in the future. 
I know as we're recording on the uh, first Friday of January, there have been some stories or not stories, but at least one of the jurors has come out and talked about being a victim of sexual abuse and how that framed the thinking. And that has raised some red flags with some lawyers. Do you, could that have an impact on the trial or is it more of a, a thing that could have in, uh an impact on that juror if he wasn't completely truthful on how he asked questions. Where does that kind of fit in this? So it will definitely have an impact. Um, the question is what sort of impact? So when I say it'll have an impact, the judge uh, will almost certainly hold a hearing on this to determine what you know what happened here um, and to assess whether the information that the court gleans from this is, is, uh, requires, you know, throwing out this verdict and, you know, and, and ordering a new trial. Um, but it's by no means assured that that's where this is going to end up. Uh, so we don't know yet. It, it really depends on what comes out at, uh, at the hearing. Um, so the way this works is, um, a defendant can ask for a new trial in the federal system, um, if you know for for a variety of different reasons, and the, the standard is if uh, for this particular um, basis would be if the interest of justice so requires, and so it's it's in the judge's discretion. That said, um, it's a really big deal to overturn a verdict, and um, the courts have dealt with situations like this in the past, unsurprisingly, where a juror has not been truthful in voir dire questions. Voir dire is what happens um, before jurors are chosen to sit in a trial. It's the process by which the court and the attorneys can ask the jurors questions. And, and the, the purpose of voir dire is to es essentially ensure that, you know, a fair and un unbiased and uh, impartial jury is seated. There's two ways you can strike a juror during voir dire. One is um, what's called a four cause challenge. That is, if the, the answers the juror gives to the questions, the prospective juror gives to the questions, indicate that the juror just cannot be fair at all, right? It's just can't evaluate the evidence fairly and partially, the court will dismiss that juror. And then the other way a juror can be stricken is, even if the juror can be fair, each side gets a certain number of uh, what are called preemptory strikes, which are just you can strike the, the juror um, just because you don't think the juror is going to be uh, beneficial to your side. Um, and that is right. That's a that's a separate type of, of strike. So the question for the court on this one is going to be based on the legal standard um, for these kinds of things is going to be whether this juror would have been stricken for cause. Not whether, I mean, clearly, right, this, you know, having this uh, background probably would would put this juror on the list of uh, jurors that the defense would probably want to exercise a preemptory on, maybe. Um, but that's not the standard. And so the judge is going to have to assess whether the uh, experiences this juror had, really, the judge is going to have to assess whether um whether the, whether the juror just could not be fair and, and was biased. And so, you know, I think that'll, right, one question is like, did the juror deliberately lie about this to get on the jury because they wanted to, you know, uh, ensure that Maxwell was convicted? That would be obviously an enormous red flag and, and that would likely result in overturning the verdict. 
But, it, you know, I think in the press reports I've read, uh, the juror seems to um, be saying that this wasn't deliberate. It was just careless, didn't read the questions. Um, and so if that's the case, you know, and it's it's not a sort of a deliberate um, misrepresentation, then it's really just going to be sort of conducting that sort of voir dire that, hap- that should have happened before, after, and assessing uh, was this juror. Um, essentially unable to to view the evidence fairly. I mean, every juror brings to the jury experience their own personal life experiences. So, you know, it's just a question of whether this particular juror's experiences made it so that he was unable to be fair at all. What did you think of the media coverage of this trial? And I don't mean like individual articles or, you know, fair, unfair, anything like that. This just was, this seemed to me a really big deal connected to an, a, a huge story in its own merit with Jeffrey Epstein, but then how the Epstein story really kind of came into the mainstream. And I just felt like it was kind of, it it didn't get the big time coverage that I thought it would get uh, in the, the mainstream media. Now, there are a couple things, maybe channels papers and magazines aren't keen on putting child sex abuse on the the front page it's a it's not something a lot of people are comfortable reading about uh or was it just as simple as there weren't cameras in the courtroom so it didn't get the big time cable news wall-to-wall coverage we see what do you what did you think of the coverage and kind of go from there yeah i mean so i don't know you know i'm not a watcher of cable news so it's hard for me to you know assess. I mean, you know, I read the New York Times, Washington Post, like it was covered. You know, I mean, the Times had a regular, you know, sort of one of those live feeds where they're updating on it. Um, So, you know, I thought I thought that there was certainly coverage of it. You know, I agree that the fact that in, in federal court, you don't have cameras in the courtroom that really changes things in terms of TV coverage enormously, obviously. I mean, the, the media ecosystem today is just so focused on videos, right? I mean, just not even with cable news, but like social media and all that. And you don't have, you know, when video clips aren't sort of readily available, it just almost takes a, a backseat in the public consciousness. Um, so I think that's a big, um, a big reason. And that's not obviously unique to this case, but, but it applies to all, all federal cases. Um, I, you know, it's also just the news cycle, right? The, the trial happened to coincide with this enormous spike in COVID cases and um, sort of the lead up to the the January 6th commemorations and, you know, at the end of the year, I just, you know, there was just other stuff going on as well. So I don't know if it got a little bit perhaps drowned out in that. And then of course, also like she wasn't Jeffrey Epstein, right? I mean, it, you know, she wasn't sort of the, she was a, a key person in the scheme, but um, she wasn't the the person um, that, that you know, that, that was sort of the, the focal point, that person is now dead. And so, you know, I think if, if this was the trial of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein, it would certainly get uh, more attention than, than this one. But I, I, I mean, you know, I, I followed it. And she could face uh, something like up to 65 years in prison. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't, you know, the, the statutory maximums are uh, useful, but, but really, um, 
sentencing turns in the federal system much more on the sentencing guidelines. Um, so it's, it's, you know, not often the case that a, a defendant will be sentenced straight up to the, the statutory maximum. That said, she's got multiple counts of conviction. There were multiple victims in the case. Um, I, you know, I don't think she's going to get a light sentence. I was looking at the, at the guidelines actually before speaking to you just to see what, um, what they would look like. And I believe that the base level just for the most serious count starts at 97 months um, or about eight years on the bottom end, but that's just where it starts. It's going to go up from there based on the factors in the case, some of which already certainly apply. Um, and then, like I said, it's it's multiple counts. So, I mean, I think she's going to um, you know, be sentenced to at least 10 years and then perhaps well more than that. Um, you know, the, the, the way the evidence came out in this case, I think was is not going to be helpful for her at sentencing. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.